Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 207. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I've got a great show lined up today, give you a clue what's coming in. We have the Hugo Reviews by Andy Thomaswick. Then we have a little interview with Greg Frost. Greg is one of the contributors to Starship Sofa Stories Volume 3. And from now on until the 11th, the 11th, 2011, I can try and get a little interview going with some of the contributors. It is time to ramp up, to jump on the bandwagon and start promoting Starship Sofa's Volume 3. So, little interview there. Then we have the main fiction, which is by Kirk Vonnegut, entitled The Big Trip Up Yonder. And it's actually narrated by Josh Roseman. You know, Josh, I was doing a little interview with a couple of weeks ago. I sold a story to Asimov's and we played it on the show. Fine narration by himself at that one. Well, I just got word back. Josh has sold another one to Sheila Williams. So, Josh, it wasn't a fluke. <laughs> That's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> you can write, Josh. There you go. So, that's just amazing news thank you very much for sharing that josh and i'm just glad to kind of pass on the word as well josh sent us an email saying you can tell but you know I'm, i knew he said he knew it was coming off but you know you, you never know for sure until contracts are signed and everything well i got the word back from josh so josh well done on that then we've got it's in october you know we're kind of getting gearing our way to halloween there the end of october i've got mike allen on the little interview with mike allen just to talk about because for our, our halloween special we're playing one of mike's stories which is like a cthulhu story and i thought it's like a, a 101 on cthulhu just before the run-up to the halloween special we'll get i'll get mike on and have a little chat just to so Mike and explain, you know, because I know a little bit, but certainly not much, you know, what is Cthulhu, where's it come from, and everything like that. So there's a great little interview with Mike Allen all about that. So straight up is Andy Thomaswick with his Hugo Reviews. Andy, sir. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Hugo Review. This time I'll be covering The Yiddish Policeman's Union by Michael Chabon which won in the Hugo Award for Best Novel in 2008. I need to predicate this discussion with a simple fact that will be made more clearly during the review. I am not Jewish. I know nothing about Jewish culture. I can count the number of Yiddish words I know on one hand. Therefore, my experience reading this book is going to be significantly different from someone who is more familiar with Judaism and its history. Despite that, I'll do my best not to wallow in my ignorance during the course of this review. 
The plot of the Yiddish Policeman's Union is an interesting mix of alternative history and murder mystery. It is set in a version of Sitka, Alaska, actual population 8,964, that is very different from the one in existence today. Granted, it's doubtful that many readers would recognize modern-day Sitka, Alaska anyway, but I happen to have the unique opportunity to finish this book while flying almost directly above Sitka at 36,000 feet on a trans-Pacific flight to Japan. If I were able to see the actual town below, it would still be unrecognizable to me, even having read this book. That is because in Shaban's alternate reality, Sitka becomes home to more than 2 million Jews that were saved from Europe during World War II. Mind you, Alaska in its entirety has less than 800,000 residents, so a city the size of the ones depicted in the book would actually triple its population. Strangely, Shaban picked up the concept used to found his version of Sitka from a real piece of legislative maneuvering. Franklin Roosevelt hatched a plan in the 1940s to provide an international Jewish homeland in Alaska to help counteract the genocidal effects of the Holocaust. The move was blocked by the delegate from Alaska. He was not actually a congressman yet, as Alaska was not a U.S. state. And eventually the Jews settled in Israel. However, in Shaban's world, that delegate dies in a car accident, and the fledgling Jewish state of Israel, which will always be their first choice, is wiped out during the Arab-Israeli War of 1948 prompting the adoption of Roosevelt's idea. Enter Sitka, Alaska, and a 60-year contract with the American government to situate the national Jewish homeland about as far away from their promised land as geographically possible. The story of the Yiddish Policemen's Union enters near the end of that 60-year period. The current American president, which is all the more descriptive the book ever gets of that rather important character, is dead set on repatriating that barren section of snow and ice to his good old red, white, and blue. He also is not willing to let any of its current inhabitants become citizens of his great immigrant nation, thereby forcing everyone living there to seek a new homeland somewhere else. Needless to say, the Jews of Sitka are not particularly thrilled with this prospect. One of them is Meyer Landsman, a drunk divorce homicide detective who serves as the book's main character and a case study in murder mystery cliches. After a murder takes place in the seedy hotel where he has been hanging his hat, Meyer agrees to take one final job before fading into the background to watch his country destroy itself. The murder plot weaves itself into an intricate tapestry of subplots involving a possible Jewish messiah, orthodox rabbinical gangsters, and yet another romantic rekindling story. Shaban ties it all together well, though some of the shock value seems to be missed by those not steeped in Judaic tradition. He does explain what a tazikator is, but some of the emotion that term would seem to evoke on a person in the know is lost on those who had never heard it before. Knowing Yiddish would help, but part of the inspiration for the book was based on Shaban's interest in what he calls a dying language. Everyone in Sitka speaks Yiddish, including the half-Tinglet Indian, half-Jewish Berko Shemetz, Landsman's partner. Theoretically, all of the dialogue in the book is also done in Yiddish, except for rare instances when it's dubbed American. If the dialogue was actually written in Yiddish, it might have lost some of the charm for the few who could actually read it. Shaban is a master of the English language, and he uses his mastery to great effect in this novel, especially in the conversations between characters. The bleak landscape of Sitka is populated by believable smart-aleck toughs who each seem to reflect the desolation of the landscape in their own quirky way. They also deal with the coming death of their nation with a range of abject fear to apathy, and everything in between. Given the unique situation that he places his characters in, Shaban does a good job of exploring the possible reactions to such a loss of one's home and livelihood. Such a literary device is a strength of the genre, and the Yiddish Policeman's Union fits well into this niche. Another area it fits well into is how it evolves the background story of the alternative world Sitka is situated in. Throughout the book, I was reminded of a scene in Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle, where the only way to tell the difference between the real world and the constructed world of Dick's masterpiece is the existence of the Embarcadero Freeway around San Francisco. Throughout the book's 400 pages, Shaban drops hints of a drastically different historical path, such as an atomic bomb being dropped on Berlin in 1946. Despite their world-changing implications, these events don't have any major impact on the story at hand except perhaps the fact that the Holocaust only killed 2 million rather than 6 million Jews. Some reviewers really did not enjoy the piecemeal way in which these revelations are distributed throughout the book. The Guardian reviewer seemed particularly distraught. The criticism leveled is that it's hard to engage a suspension of disbelief while having ever more improbable factoids dropped around seemingly at random. However, I personally like this technique as another unique genre tool. 
It allows the reader's mind to wander through the rest of the partially constructed world, wondering what other stories are hiding in its shell. It doesn't seem like Siobhan plans to explore any of those other stories himself. He knows the subject matter well, a fact which is made obvious throughout the book. He even traveled to Sitka over the course of writing the book to get a better feel for the general atmosphere of his improbable sprawling metropolis, or, since authors can never truly escape from the real world, the complete lack of a metropolis. Despite the lore steeped in Jewish tradition and language, the Yiddish Policeman's Union is still a creative and well-written addition to the Hugo Pantheon. I would even more highly suggest trying to finish it while in Alaska. That's it for this edition of the Hugo Review. Next up is the winner for 2007, Rainbow's End by Werner Vinge. Thanks for listening, now get out there and start reading. There you go. Andy, this is, honestly, this has turned out to be like a great little feature because it's something that needs to be documented, you know, but what a task it is to get to get that done, to get through all them books or... You know, great praise on you for doing that. Thank you very much. So, you know, the the engines are rolling. We're we're on the bandwagon now. On the on the promotion road with Starship Sova's Volume Three. At this moment, she is so close to getting. You know, there's just like little fine tweaks there. Now I've seen the kind of the finished edition and everything like that. And as near as damn it, there's a little bit of few things to put in. D has worked. He's worked himself into the ground for this, to be quite honest. And like I say, we're just gonna start promoting it, you know, and you know, getting it kinda of in your in your heads to kinda of think when the when the, that date comes, the eleven, 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 you know, you'll you'll think about supporting the Starships over. You know, do you like what we do? Would you enjoy it? You know, we we give it away for free. This is the way to help support it. And it goes great with the other two. If you've got the other two, you can't do without the third one. So, a little interview I did. Greg Frost is one of the contributors who so kindly, you know, donated a story there to to this volume, to this anthology. So, Gregory Frost, aren't you excited about being in Volume 3 of Starship Sofa Story, sir? <laughs> I'm ecstatic, yes. <laughs> and you know what? Very much so. <laughs> ecstatic, and you, you're giving away the story as well for free. Greg, what can I honestly well, about I, that? What can I say? Thank honestly, thank you so much for doing that. Oh, you're more than welcome. I was delighted to uh, to contribute. You know, I mean, like I say, it, this is like kind of the main fun driver of the show. So it, it, you know, from your heart, there it does. You know, it it gets us every time when people hand in a story and like I say, appreciate it so much, especially when it's in the the written format. You know, it's okay having them in audio. Do you know what I mean? It it seems a little bit different, but when you're going into the written format, you kind of strain into writers. You know. Own own ground if if one for a better description and it's you know it's it's trying it's hard at the always prize it out of the fingers so thank you very much yeah yeah oh sure my tell pleasure. us my pleasure tell yeah. us about then the story that's going to be in volume three that that blissful height where did it come um, from and well, what's it what's it about it has a really strange um, generation and maybe that's true for everybody's stories but not always for mine I went to uh, I was doing a historical tour of Philadelphia, and there's a a building which was the second bank of the United States originally, which is now a portrait gallery. And um, and running across the portraits, I came across a portrait of a man named Robert Hare, who had been the head of the chemistry department at the University of Pennsylvania in the 1830s and uh, 1840s. And um, they just had a little plaque under the picture explaining who he was, and at the end of this little thing about his his life as an academic, it says, and he invented the spiritoscope. And I'm going, what the hell is that? And, you know, I mean, as somebody who goes, oh, yes, that sounds interesting, I had to write that down right away, and I came home and uh, started researching him, and I found out that the University of Pennsylvania has a uh, strange collection, by the way, of, of just books on witchcraft and supernatural phenomena that nobody knows about, the Charles Lee, L-E-A, collection. If you ever want to do research into weird witchcraft the U of Pennsylvania has got these books. It's amazing. But they had a book he wrote in 1848 about his experiences in spiritualism where he had invented these devices called spiritoscopes to keep mediums from cheating, or at least that's what he believed. And um, 
he went through, you know, the whole thing. It, it, it begins about the time that the Fox sisters are cracking their toe knuckles to pretend that they're communicating with, you know, people from the beyond, the supposed rapping spirits, which is where it started. It's amazing how um, ghostly communication went very quickly from rapping spirits to this kind of thing where you're communicating with them via devices that are sort of like giant Ouija boards. And, uh, and, and then, of course, from there to mediums who were speaking um, – in the voices of the spirits, or the spirits were speaking through them, however you however you like it. But Hare's a really interesting phenomenon because he was a uh, he was a, a, an important scientist in the United States. He was one of the first members of the uh, Academy of Natural Sciences in Pennsylvania, and he was drummed out of the rolls for investigating spiritualism. They wouldn't have anything to do with him after that, so it it ruined his scientific. Uh, reputation and his career, which is why almost nobody knows about him anymore. Did so it, it, I just became more and more fascinated by him as a character as I researched more and more, and I ended up writing a story that sort of parallels his actual uh, experiences. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Did you know when you kind of discovered, you know, that that first initial encounter? Was it you know you instantly had to write that story about him, or was is this story, you know, over the maybe a course of two years took shape with all the research? Um, it did take shape over probably two years, and but I was really compelled to to do something with him. He was just so uncanny um, a, a character. I'd never run across anybody like that before in history, and nobody knew about him. So I figured I own this guy. Nobody's got him. <laughs> uh, they can't touch me here, you know. So and and despite having written this novella, I'm still kind of obsessed with him. I, I still want to do more with him, and I, I still keep coming back to spiritualism in America and, and trying to figure out ways to work that into into fiction. So I'm working on a historical um, fantasy novel right now, dark fantasy that's set in the 1840s. Again, I've gone back to the the same place, and and Fitcher's Brides, which was a uh, you know, World Fantasy Award finalist, uh, was also set in the 1840s, and also to some extent about spiritualism. It kind of was an offshoot of the same research. So it's like looking up Robert Hare has kind of, you know, guided me into all kinds of projects by accident. Oh, that's a, 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 a good thing I was going to ask you there. Is, you know, yes, you, you kind of done the story and everything like that, but now is it taking on a, almost a hobby for you, this spiritualism? You know, are you quite into it on a personal level? Well, not to the extent that I've actually, you know, constructed my own uh, spirit scope or anything, but but I'm fascinated by. It. I continue to pick up books on the subject, and and uh, and in fact, I started writing a, a nonfiction book about spiritualism in America that started way back with uh, Anton Mesmer and and Great Awakenings on the American frontier, all these religious movements, and uh, and eventually gave that up when a uh, a, a book editor at the University of Pennsylvania Press, which is who I was talking to, uh, explained that the book I wanted to write was one that came down against spiritualism because in the end I was I was going, there's so much evidence of, of trickery and, and fraud that there's really no evidence at all of spirit communications. And uh, and she explained to me that because I wasn't a, an, a, a somebody with a PhD in history, I was essentially writing a popular history of, of spiritualism and, and communication with the dead. And as such, I couldn't come down on the side of it being wrong. I had to come down on the side of there being the possibility of it. And I went, that's not going to work out for me. So, <laughs> so, But I did a lot of research, which has been useful as a result. But but the, the nonfiction book will never happen because I'm never going to come down on the side of uh -huh. Communication, you know, with the afterlife—it's just not going to happen. So, anyway, that's that's quite that's, that's, that's quite a bizarre, you know. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So unless I, unless I made it, you know, appropriate for the History Channel, which is the channel that pretends to show you history, um, you know, I, I I couldn't write it. So very strange. Tell us that because am I right in thinking it was it, it was collected in a book called Intersections? Yeah, I wrote it originally um, because I was going to go to a Sycamore Hill that Dr. John Kessel was was running, and it was a story that was was I still didn't have the shape of it. I was still working desperately to figure out what this story looked like because it's not written in my usual voice, as it were. It's not written in some ways like like your average short story or genre story. 
Um, so I wrote it in this kind of experimental form and took it to Sycamore Hill, figuring I would, you know, either be vivisected or or celebrated one way or the other by uh, by writers like Bruce Sterling and Karen Fowler and Maureen McHugh, people like that, who you know were going to give me the kind of feedback that I wanted to hear on this story. So it ended up it ended up that that was a year that John had contracted with uh, Tor Books to do a Sycamore Hill Anthology. And so everyone that went that year, their story ended up in that in that collection. What I like there as well, when you, where you mentioned Dr. John Kessel. Now, I didn't know that. Is is John Kessel a doctor or is that just... He's a, no, he's a PhD. So he's he's technically a doctor, yes. Right. Hey, wow. So He's, I, he's scary. Sorry? He's scary that way. <laughs> So you put doctor in front of his name, and you, he looks yes. like in a Boris Karloff movie or something. So, you know. <laughs> what for you, then, Greg? What are you doing now? Just out of interest, you know? Because, like you say, we've got a. I think we've got a story by you due out, and you know you've played a couple of your stories, and you know what a great narrator. I just remember there, what a great narrator you are for your own work as well. What are you, you doing of late then for writing? Um, well, I just finished a novella for a project that's helmed by uh, Jonathan Mayberry. Uh, it's called V Wars, and I don't know if it's going to end up being a series of books or what, but it's the first book is a collection of, I think, seven novellas, all set in this kind of shared um, universe, for lack of a better term, um, that involves uh, vampires, but in a way I don't think you've ever seen before. I hope nobody's ever seen it before. That's that's the idea. So it's sort of the vampire version of Max Brooks's Z Wars, I think, in some respects. And uh, and everybody took you know picked out their own character and wrote their own stories with a with a, a Bible, as it were, to the to the concept and and the um, the the universe. That's what, I was, that's what I, was, I was just thinking there. How did you get in like up to speed on the universe? Uh, pretty quickly, um, he <laughs> he threw out a uh, about a ten page, uh, like I say, Bible that covers most of the stuff in the uh, in a, in a general sort of way, and then he turned us loose, and we had feedback from him and from the the editors. Of, I think it's IDW that's publishing it um, as as we went along. So everybody had plenty of feedback, and uh, and you know, first you wrote up a wrote up an idea, pitched it, and they liked the idea, then, you know, it was time to write the story. And so I spent a good part of the summer writing the, a 20,000-word novella, which was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I had to learn about rappelling and, and ice climbing and all sorts of things that I knew nothing about. So, did, you know, more was, one, when you'd finished that one, like you say, and you, you handed it in, did, did it come back and with a, you know, a, Greg, you, you, you've, missed, you've missed an idea here with me, universe. Was there anything like that, or did you kind of nail it straight away? Um, actually, no. The editor's comments, uh, mostly through the manuscript, were little bits where I was, I was waiting to be killed, like halfway through it, with somebody going, <laughs> you know, you can't actually do this. It's impossible. I'm just waiting for that to happen. And instead, most of them were little things where I'd check the comments in the Word document, and it would be nice. And i go, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Keep saying nice all the way through it. That's what I want to hear is nice. Yeah, so... Um, no, I didn't. I didn't have any problems with it. They were they were pretty good about the whole thing. So, so I'm looking forward to seeing it come out. And I think it's coming out in the spring. It's it's fast tracked to come out soon. So, you know, just how do you? Or can you work any which way? Do you know, can you be sometimes heavy handed? You know, buy an editor and guide you exactly down the path, or do you like just to be left alone? You know, and take what you you produce you know, on your own merit kind of thing. Are you quite happy just to do it either way or do you, do you like heavy guidance by an editor? Well, I'd be, I'd prefer to be left alone in a room with a case of scotch and, you know, in a laptop, <laughs> but that's usually not what happens. Um, so I've, I've never, to my knowledge, I've never encountered an editor who was heavy handed with me. Um, I've, I've been fairly lucky that way with people liking what, what I produced, um, and I'm also, uh, like Michael Swanwick, I'm somebody who tends to uh, want to write the entire thing before I show it to an editor. So I'm not selling book con uh, you know, books on a, a sample chapter or what I wrote on a cocktail napkin or something, and then I have to go write the book, and it turns out to be a, a, a terrible idea after all, but you have to write it because you, you sold it. Um, I'm one of those people that likes to write the book and then go see if I can find somebody who, you know, who wants it. Um, so, 
So in that sense, I haven't had the same editorial experience that perhaps other people have. But then at the same time, that means I'm not out there uh, trying real hard to get money every five minutes, which a lot of writers have to do just to just to keep going. And uh, they've got to be pitching constantly. And I'm just I'm not that kind of guy. So and, do, you know, does that work out for you? I guess it, it must do then. You know, you write the story you want to write and then it gets sold. Does that does that happen all the time for you? It must do, surely. Well, we hope it gets sold. Well, I've had a few that got got shelved, so uh, it doesn't happen every time. Uh, it used to happen, you know, that used to happen a lot. The uh, the oh, that didn't work out. Put it away in a drawer thing, but it, it hasn't happened in the last, I guess, twenty years. Pretty oh, much everything. Oh, what a hey, round of applause, sir. <laughs> Well, thank you, but that also tells you how old I am because it's been good for 20 years. How, how many years was it sucky before that? <laughs> well, Greg, honestly, like I said before, you know, just talking, it's just an immense pleasure to get get your work, you know, in my volume as well. And well, you know, I really appreciate I, it. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate being asked. So thank you very much, Tony. Well, Greg, you look after yourself, sir. Thanks. A fine man with a fine story in a fantastic book. There you go. So do look out for more interviews in the coming weeks with this release and probably more afterwards as well. <laughs> I do hope you'll kind of, you know, once it comes out, though, do help support Starship Sova. That would be fantastic. So main fiction is... The Big Trip Up Yonder by Kirk Vonnegut. Now, myself and Kieran, we did a show once, dipped into a, a Kirk Vonnegut show, and, you know, a, a favourite, you know, that Slaughterhouse Five, what a, you know, I listened to that on audio, and it was the audible audio version of that, and it was just, you know, stunning quality, and the story's just amazing, you know, it just... It's just everything. It's just, i tell you why I like Kirk Vonnegut. It's just the quirky writing. And I haven't actually read everything. You know, I've probably only read, I think, I'll listen to three books by him. Do you know, it's it's not, he's not a writer that kind of, I've gulfed down and, you know, I've actually seen that. I mean, I've read, I've um, I got on my Kindle, you can get some essays by him. And I bought the essays and I've read them as well. You know, this story is actually one of the ones that you can find on Gutenberg. You know, it's, it's up there, you know, so I'm not kind of... <laughs> Going to you know the, the man's estate there and and whipping his you know stealing his his kind of royalties or anything like that. This is up on Gutenberg. It hasn't been you know copyrighted or anything like that. So we're we're fine to play it. It's narrated by like I say, Josh Roseman. Josh has it's just coming with his own you know with, with his kind of his work in the science fiction world. You know two stories now under his belt. Ashimov. You know you can't get better than that man. Go on, Josh. Keep on writing. Just keep on doing it now. You you're on a roll. Do you know what I mean? Obviously. Sheila's liking your work, and that is tremendous. Do you know what I mean? If you're getting like quality from you know stories accepted by the, you know the great Sheila Williams, wow. Do you know what I mean? I can just look up to her as like some sort of god. Do you know what I mean? The, the stories she could pick. You know what I mean? It's just what keeps keeps this go, ship going. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present the Big Trip Up Yonder by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. If it was good enough for your grandfather, forget it. It is much too good for anyone else. Gramps Ford, his chin resting on his hands, his hands on the crook of his cane, was staring irascibly at the five-foot television screen that dominated the room. On the screen, a news commentator was summarizing the day's happenings. Every 30 seconds or so, Gramps would jab the floor with his cane tip and shout, Hell, we did that a hundred years ago! Emerald and Lou, coming in from the balcony, where they had been seeking that 2185 A.D. rarity, privacy, were obliged to take seats in the back row, behind Lou's father and mother, brother and sister-in-law, son and daughter-in-law, grandson and wife, granddaughter and husband, great-grandson and wife, nephew and wife, grandnephew and wife, great-grandniece and husband, great-grandnephew and wife, and, of course, Gramps, who was in front of everybody, all save Gramps, who was somewhat withered and bent, seemed, by pre-anti-Gerasone standards, to be about the same age, somewhere in their late twenties or early thirties. Gramps looked older, because he had already reached seventy when anti-Gerasone was invented. He had not aged in the hundred and two years since. Meanwhile, the commentator was saying, Council Bluffs, Iowa, was still threatened by stark tragedy, but two hundred weary rescue workers have refused to give up hope, and continue to dig in an effort to save Elbert Hagedorn, 
183, who has been wedged for two days in a, I wish he'd get something more cheerful, Emerald whispered to Lou. Silence, cried Gramps. Next one shoots off his big bazoo while the TV's on is going to find himself cut off without a dollar. His voice suddenly softened and sweetened when they wave that checkered flag at the Indianapolis Speedway and old Gramps gets ready for the big trip up yonder. He sniffed sentimentally while his heirs concentrated desperately on not making the slightest sound. For them, the poignancy of the prospective big trip had been dulled somewhat through having been mentioned by Gramps about once a day for fifty years. Dr. Brainerd Keyes Bullard, continued the commentator, president of Wyandotte College, said in an address tonight that most of the world's ills can be traced to the fact that man's knowledge of himself has not kept pace with his knowledge of the physical world. Hell, snorted Gramps, we said that a hundred years ago. In Chicago tonight, the commentator went on, a special celebration is taking place in the Chicago Lying-In Hospital. The guest of honor is Lowell W. Hitz, age zero. Hitz, born this morning, is the twenty-five millionth child to be born in the hospital. The commentator faded and was replaced on the screen by young Hitz, who squalled furiously. Hell, whispered Lou to Emerald, we said that a hundred years ago. I heard that shouted Gramps. He snapped off the television set, and his petrified descendants stared silently at the screen. You there, boy. I didn't mean anything by it, sir, said Lou, aged 103. Get me my will. You know where it is. You kids all know where it is. Fetch, boy. Gramps snapped his gnarled fingers sharply. Lou nodded dully and found himself going down the hall, picking his way over bedding to Gramps' room, the only private room in the Ford apartment. The other rooms were the bathroom, the living room, and the wide, windowless hallway, which was originally intended to serve as a dining area and which had a kitchenette in one end. Six mattresses and four sleeping bags were dispersed in the hallway and living room, and the daybed in the living room accommodated the eleventh couple, the favorites of the moment. On Gramps' bureau was his will, smeared, dog-eared, perforated, and blotched with hundreds of additions, deletions, accusations, conditions, warnings, advice, and homely philosophy. The document was, Lou reflected, a fifty-year diary, all jammed onto two sheets, a garbled, illegible log of day after day of strife. This day, Lou would be disinherited for the eleventh time, and it would take him perhaps six months of impeccable behavior to regain the promise of a share in the estate, to say nothing of the daybed in the living room for M and himself. Boy, called Gramps. Coming, sir. Lou hurried back into the living room and handed Gramps the will. Pen, said Gramps. He was instantly offered eleven pens, one from each couple. Not that leaky thing, he said, brushing Lou's pen aside. Ah, there's a nice one. Good boy, Willie. He accepted Willie's pen. That was the tip they had all been waiting for. Willie, then, Lou's father, was the new favorite. Willie, who looked almost as young as Lou, though he was 142, did a poor job of concealing his pleasure. He glanced shyly at the daybed, which would become his, and from which Lou and Emerald would have to move back into the hall, back to the worst spot of all, by the bathroom door. Gramps missed none of the high drama he had authored, and he gave his own familiar role everything he had, frowning and running his finger along each line, as though he were seeing the will for the first time he read aloud in a deep, portentous monotone, like a bass note. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. On a cathedral organ. I, Harold D. Ford, residing in Building 257 of Alden Village, New York City, Connecticut, do hereby make, publish, and declare this to be my last will and testament, revoking any and all former wills and codicils by me at any time heretofore made. He blew his nose importantly and went on, not missing a word and repeating many for emphasis, repeating in particular his ever more elaborate specifications for a funeral. At the end of these specifications, Gramps was so choked with emotion that Lou thought he might have forgotten why he'd brought out the will in the first place. But Gramps heroically brought his powerful emotions under control and, after erasing for a full minute, began to write and speak at the same time. Lou could have spoken his lines for him. He had heard them so often. I have had many heartbreaks ere leaving this veil of tears for a better land, Gramps said and wrote, but the deepest hurt of all has been dealt me by, he looked around the group, trying to remember who the malefactor was. Everyone looked helpfully at Lou, who held up his hand resignedly. Gramps nodded, remembering, and completed the sentence, my great-grandson, Louis J. Ford. Grandson, sir, said Lou. Don't quibble. You're in deep enough now, young man, said Gramps but he made the change. And from there he went without a misstep through the phrasing of the disinheritance, causes for which were disrespectfulness and quibbling. In the paragraph following, the paragraph that had belonged to everyone in the room at one time or another, Lou's name was scratched out, and Willie's substituted as heir to the apartment and, the biggest plum of all, the double bed in the private bedroom. So, said Gramps, beaming, he erased the date at the foot of the will and substituted a new one, including the time of day. Well, time to watch the McGarvey family. The McGarvey family was a television serial that Gramps had been following since he was 60, or for a total of 112 years. I can't wait to see what's going to happen next. Lou detached himself from the group and lay down on his bed of pain by the bathroom door, wishing M would join him. He wondered where she was. He dozed for a few moments until he was disturbed by someone stepping over him to get into the bathroom. A moment later, he heard a faint gurgling sound, as though something were being poured down the wash basin drain. Suddenly, it entered his mind that M had cracked up, that she was in there doing something drastic about Gramps. M? he whispered through the panel. There was no reply, and Lou pressed against the door. The worn lock, whose bolt barely engaged its socket, held for a second, then let the door swing inward. Morty! gasped Lou. Lou's great-grandnephew Mortimer, who had just married and brought his wife home to the Ford Menage, looked at Lou with consternation and surprise. Morty kicked the door shut, but not before Lou had glimpsed what was in his hand. Gramps's enormous economy-sized bottle of anti-gerasone, which had apparently been half-emptied and which Morty was refilling with tap water. A moment later, Morty came out, glared defiantly at Lou, and brushed past him wordlessly to rejoin his pretty bride. Shocked, Lou didn't know what to do. He couldn't let Gramps take the mouse-trapped anti-gerasone, but if he warned Gramps about it, Gramps would certainly make life in the apartment, which was merely insufferable now, harrowing. Lou glanced into the living room and saw that the Fords, emerald among them, were momentarily at rest, relishing the botches that the McGarveys had made of their lives. Stealthily, he went into the bathroom, locked the door as well as he could, and began to pour the contents of Gramps's bottle down the drain. He was going to refill it with full-strength anti-gerasone from the twenty-two smaller bottles on the shelf. The bottle contained a half-gallon, and its neck was small, so it seemed to Lou that the emptying would take forever, and the almost imperceptible smell of anti-gerasone 
like Worcestershire sauce, now seemed to Lou, in his nervousness, to be pouring out into the rest of the apartment through the keyhole and under the door. The bottle gurgled monotonously. Suddenly, up came the sound of music from the living room, and there were murmurs and the scraping of chair legs on the floor. Thus ends, said the television announcer, the 29,121st chapter in the life of your neighbors and mine, the McGarveys. Footsteps were coming down the hall. There was a knock on the bathroom door. Just a sec, Lou cheerily called out. Desperately, he shook the big bottle, trying to speed up the flow. His palms slipped on the wet glass, and the heavy bottle smashed on the tile floor. The door was pushed open, and Gramps, dumbfounded, stared at the incriminating mess. Lou felt a hideous prickling sensation on his scalp in the back of his neck. He grinned engagingly through his nausea and, for want of anything remotely resembling a thought, waited for Gramps to speak. "'Well, boy,' said Gramps at last, "'looks like you've got a little tidying up to do.' And that was all he said. He turned around, elbowed his way through the crowd, and locked himself in his bedroom. The Fords contemplated Lou in incredulous silence a moment longer, and then hurried back to the living room, as though some of his horrible guilt would taint them too if they looked too long. Morty stayed behind long enough to give Lou a quizzical, annoyed glance. Then he also went into the living room, leaving only Emerald standing in the doorway. Tears streamed over her cheeks. Oh, you poor lamb, please don't look so awful. It was my fault. I put you up to this with my nagging about Gramps. No, said Lou, finding his voice. Really, you didn't. Honest, Em, I was just... You don't have to explain anything to me, hun. I'm on your side, no matter what. She kissed him on one cheek and whispered in his ear. It wouldn't have been murder, hon. It wouldn't have killed him. It wasn't such a terrible thing to do. It just would have fixed him up so he'd be able to go any time God decided he wanted him. What's going to happen next, Em? said Lou hollowly. What's he going to do? Lou and Emerald stayed fearfully awake almost all night, waiting to see what Gramps was going to do, but not a sound came from the sacred bedroom. Two hours before dawn... They finally dropped off to sleep. At six o'clock, they arose again, for it was time for their generation to eat breakfast in the kitchenette. No one spoke to them. They had twenty minutes in which to eat, but their reflexes were so dulled by the bad night that they had hardly swallowed two mouthfuls of egg-type processed seaweed before it was time to surrender their places to their son's generation. Then, as was the custom for whoever had been most recently disinherited, they began preparing Gramps' breakfast, which would presently be served to him in bed, on a tray. They tried to be cheerful about it. The toughest part of the job was having to handle the honest-to-God eggs and bacon and oleomargarine on which Gramps spent so much of the income from his fortune. Well, said Emerald, I'm not going to get all panicky until I'm sure there's something to be panicky about. Maybe he doesn't know what it was I busted, Lou said hopefully. Probably thinks it was your watch crystal, offered Eddie, their son, who was toying apathetically with his buckwheat-type processed sawdust cakes. Don't get sarcastic with your father, said Em, and don't talk with your mouthful either. I'd like to see anybody take a mouthful of this stuff and not say something, complained Eddie, who was seventy-three. He glanced at the clock. It's time to take Gramps his breakfast, you know. Yeah. It is, isn't it? said Lou weakly. He shrugged. Let's have the tray, Em. We'll both go. Walking slowly, smiling bravely, they found a large semicircle of long-faced Fords standing around the bedroom door. Em knocked. Gramps, she called brightly, breakfast is ready. There was no reply, and she knocked again, harder. The door swung open before her fist. In the middle of the room, the soft, deep, wide, canopied bed, the symbol of the sweet by-and-by to every Ford, was empty. A sense of death, as unfamiliar to the Fords as Zoroastrianism or the causes of the Sepoy mutiny, stilled every voice, slowed every heart. Awed, the heirs began to search gingerly, under the furniture and behind the drapes, for all that was mortal of Gramps, father of the clan. But Gramps had left not his earthly husk, but a note, 
which Lou finally found on the dresser under a paperweight, which was a treasured souvenir from the World's Fair of 2000. Unsteadily, Lou read it aloud. Somebody who I have sheltered and protected and taught the best I know how all these years last night turned on me like a mad dog and diluted my anti-gerasone, or tried to. I am no longer a young man. I can no longer bear the crushing burden of life as I once could. So, after last night's bitter experience, I say goodbye. The cares of this world will soon drop away like a cloak of thorns, and I shall know peace. By the time you find this, I will be gone. Gosh, said Willie, brokenly. He didn't even get to see how the 5,000-mile speedway race was going to come out. Or the Solar Series, Eddie said with large, mournful eyes. Or whether Mrs. McGarvey got her eyesight back, added Morty. There's more, said Lou, and he began reading aloud again. I, Harold D. Ford, etc., do hereby make, publish, and declare this to be my last will and testament, revoking any and all former wills and codicils by me at any time heretofore made. No, cried Willie, not another one. I do stipulate, read Lou, that all of my property, of whatsoever kind in nature, not be divided, but do devise and bequeath it to be held in common by my issue, without regard for generation, equally, share and share alike. Issue? said Emerald. Lou included the multitude in a sweep of his hand. It means we all own the whole damn shooting match. Each eye turned instantly to the bed. Share and share alike? asked Morty. Actually, said Willie, who was the oldest one present, it's just like the old system, where the oldest people head up things with their headquarters in here, and I like that, exclaimed M. Lou owns as much of it as you do, and I say it ought to be for the oldest one who's still working. You can snooze around here all day waiting for your pension check, while poor Lou stumbles in here after work, all tuckered out, and how about letting somebody who's never had any privacy get a little crack at it? Eddie demanded hotly. Hell, you old people had plenty of privacy back when you were kids. I was born and raised in the middle of that goddamn barracks in the hall. How about, yeah, challenged Morty, sure, you've all had it pretty tough and my heart bleeds for you. "'but try honeymooning in the hall for a real kick.' "'Silence!' shouted Willie imperiously. "'The next person who opens his mouth "'spends the next six months by the bathroom. "'Now clear out of my room. "'I want to think.' "'A vase shattered against the wall, "'inches above his head. "'In the next moment, a free-for-all was underway, "'with each couple battling to eject "'every other couple from the room, "'fighting coalitions formed and dissolved "'with the lightning changes of the tactical situation. "'M and Lou were thrown into the hall "'where they organized others in the same situation "'and stormed back into the room. "'After two hours of struggle, "'with nothing like a decision in sight, "'the cops broke in, "'followed by television cameramen from mobile units. "'For the next half hour, "'patrol wagons and ambulances hauled away Fords, "'and then the apartment was still and spacious.' An hour later, films of the last stages of the riot were being televised to 500 million delighted viewers on the eastern seaboard. In the stillness of the three-room Ford apartment on the 76th floor of Building 257, the television set had been left on. Once more, the air was filled with the cries and grunts and crashes of the fray, coming harmlessly now from the loudspeaker. The battle also appeared on the screen of the television set in the police station, where the Fords and their captors watched with professional interest. M and Lou, in adjacent four-by-eight cells, were stretched out peacefully on their cots. M, called Lou through the partition, you got a wash basin all your own, too? Sure, wash basin, bed, light, the works, and we thought Gramps' room was something. How long has this been going on? She held out her hand. For the first time in forty years, hun, I haven't got the shakes. Look at me. Cross your fingers, said Lou. The lawyer's going to try to get us a year. Gee, said M, dreamily, I wonder what kind of wires you'd have to pull to get put away in solitary. All right, pipe down, said the turnkey, or I'll toss the whole kitten caboodle of you right out, and the first one who lets on to anybody outside how good jail is ain't never getting back in. The prisoners, instantly fell silent. The living room of the apartment darkened a moment as the riot scenes faded on the television screen, and then the face of the announcer appeared, like the sun coming from behind a cloud. 
And now, friends, he said, I have a special message from the makers of Anti-Gerasone, a message for all you folks over 150. Are you hampered socially by wrinkles, by stiffness of joints and discoloration or loss of hair, all because these things came upon you before Anti-Gerasone was developed? Well, if you are, you need no longer suffer, need no longer feel different and out of things. After years of research, medical science has now developed super anti-gerasone. In weeks, yes, weeks, you can look, feel, and act as young as your great-great-grandchildren. Wouldn't you pay $5,000 to be indistinguishable from everybody else? Well, now you don't have to. Safe, tested, super anti-gerasone costs you only a few dollars a day. Right now for your free trial carton, just put your name and address on a dollar postcard and mail it to Super. Box 500,000, Schenectady, New York. Have you got that? I'll repeat it. Super. Box 500,000. Underlining the announcer's words was the scratching of Gramps's pen, the one Willie had given him the night before. He had come in a few minutes earlier from the Idle Hour Tavern, which commanded a view of Building 257 from across the square of asphalt known as the Alden Village Green. He had called a cleaning woman to come straighten the place up, then had hired the best lawyer in town to get his descendants a conviction, a genius who had never gotten a client less than a year and a day. Gramps had then moved the daybed before the television screen so that he could watch from a reclining position. It was something he'd dreamed of doing for years. Schenectady, murmured Gramps. Got it. His face had changed remarkably. His facial muscles seemed to have relaxed, revealing kindness and equanimity under what had been tout lines of bad temper. Revealing kindness and equanimity under what had been taught lines of bad temper. It was almost as though his trial package of super anti-Gerasone had already arrived. When something amused him on television, he smiled easily, rather than barely managing to lengthen the thin line of his mouth a millimeter. Life was good. He could hardly wait to see what was going to happen next. <laughs> There you go. Like I would sometimes say, you know, copyright is, but it's yours. Do what you want with it. It's there to be used and abused, as they say. So, next up is another little interview. What I said in the beginning, you know, it's this run-up to the the Halloween. And actually, I think I'm working Halloween night. <laughs> you know, so I can't, um, you know, decorate my sons and daughters' faces and everything like that. I'm, I'm, I think I'm on a back shift where I'll miss all that totally. But... You know, it'd be nice to kind of have a little bit of a horror story on the Starship Sova. And we have one by Mike Allen. Mike Allen, as you know, is or he's done a couple of narrations and he's had a fine story, The Button Bin. We played that. Actually, it was Mike that narrated it. That was up for a Nebula Award a couple of years ago. A great story, that one was. And Mike's got this kind of quirky kind of horror, you know, sometimes, you know, a little bit dark side of his stories. And this one, you know, this is like a Cthulhu story. And it's just a fantastic story and I, like I say I wanted really to get Mike on just to, to you know for me personally as well just to explain a little bit about Cthulhu you know the kind of the origins and everything like that you know because you do you hear it and you see it and you still see it to this day do you know what I mean I, I knew you know it kind of way back when it, it was invented but it was nice just to for anybody else there out there who's not too sure about you know this Cthulhu so, Mike, I've got you on here kind of really as a, as a you know, a guide to, a 101 guide to Cthulhu. Because, to be quite honest, I know a little bit. And I know that, you know, there'll be a lot of people out there as well that, you know, have got like in England, you know, this Cthulhu. But it does seem like a, like a bit of an iceberg to me. You know, it's a lot deeper on the, in, you know, underneath. So I'm just hoping you can kind of explain a little bit for me and for anybody out there, you know, like say, what is Cthulhu? Well, it's appropriate that you mention iceberg because, of course, uh, Cthulhu lives in the ocean. Now, I have to say, uh, I am a more of a casual Cthulhu fan than a Cthulhu expert. So it's possible that somebody out there who is a Cthulhu expert will listen to what I say and say, oh, he didn't get that right. <laughs> so, so I just want to apologize to those people in advance. Uh, Cthulhu is a creation of a writer named H.P. Lovecraft, his American uh, 
who was writing for Weird Tales and other publications at the beginning of the 20th century. And Cthulhu is a... Uh, you could describe him as either a god or the most powerful member of an alien race that used to rule the earth and has since uh, sort of gone into hibernation. He uh, is imprisoned in a city uh, underwater that's called... Uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce this right, Leia. And the the whole concept of H.P. Lovecraft's stories is that there were these alien races that once controlled the Earth that have left or been imprisoned or gone into hibernation for whatever reason. And we, the race of man believe that we are, you know, the lords of what we survey. But when all of these creatures wake up and come back, we are going to find that we are nothing more than ants, and we are going to be destroyed, enslaved, eaten, and these things are so mind-bogglingly alien and so powerful that there just will be nothing that, that we can do about it. This is... Uh, this. Uh, this gets into the concept of cosmic horror that H.P. Lovecraft sort of pioneered the the idea that the idea that you know man is insignificant. I mean, we we mean we mean nothing to the universe, and you know that's Cthulhu is meant to be kind of an embodiment of that. Uh, you know, you just say there that you you know you're not an expert. That was a fantastic description. Thank you very much, sir. Well, thank you. <laughs> now, 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 there's a little bit more that I should give you because Cthulhu has a very distinctive appearance, uh, which if if you're if you're an H.P. Lovecraft fan, you you recognize it on sight. Um, he's a hundred feet tall at least, or something. You know, Godzilla size, and he has is humanoid, but his head is basically like an octopus, and he also has uh, he also has these great big bat wings. Now, I mean, it sounds probably sort of ridiculous the way I've described it, but you know, H.P. Lovecraft when he introduces the when he introduces this creature in a short story that's called The Call of Cthulhu, it's a very memorable. Uh, unforgettable appearance and you know nowadays it's actually kind of impressed a bit onto popular culture there are Cthulhu stuffed dolls and Cthulhu for president bumper stickers and you know all all, all sorts of things that maybe make the the big old guy a, a little bit cuddlier in a way <laughs> but but you know it's all I guess sort of a psychological reaction to that to that you know first terrifying impression the creature makes when you encounter it in his story. Why Why is it then? Because you've just hit like a, a question I was going to ask you then. Why has it come along right through, you know, like the time of genre writing? And why is it still? Because what we're going to do, we're going to play one of your stories in a couple of weeks' time for like a Halloween special. Is like a Cthulhu, you know, story. And it's from like a collection, which I'm... I think it's just come out, or it's just you know it hasn't been out that long. Why is it then? Oh, it's, it's been out about a year. Yeah. Well, why, why is it then, Mike? That there's still this kind of yearning for Cthulhu stories, and and like you see, Cthulhu stuffed dolls. <laughs> well, I I think there's a. I'm I'm. This one's a little bit more difficult, but I'll take a stab. <laughs> I, I think there, there's there's a couple of different reasons. Uh, I think the the stories themselves have remained popular or actually grown much more popular. Uh, Lovecraft died, you know, a pauper, more or less unknown. Uh, and now, uh, you know, Metallica has made songs based on these stories, you know, as, as one example. And, you know, there've been, there've been movies, although none of them have been very good. Um, but the, there have been better movies such as the Hellboy movies, uh, Guillermo del Toro, uh, that, uh, or Guillermo del Toro, excuse me, who who uh, you know sort of cherry picks a few Lovecraft tropes and uses them in those movies. And if you 
familiar with the stories, you recognize them. And I, I think um, it's a combination of it's it's a combination of Lovecraft uh, still being possibly the best at producing that particular kind of horror. Um, you know, so horror connoisseurs have to love it for that reason. But also, he he invents this very detailed cosmology, and I think that that is just fascinating to people. All of these all of these creatures that he creates in these linked stories uh, that are that are referred to as the Cthulhu mythos stories, and uh, they're very inventive and and fascinating. Just just completely completely on their own outside of the stories they're in that's what i was that's what i was going to ask you there mike did you know when that first story came out and i think you said it came out in weird tales did was there like an instant reaction to like this is something special from the like the, the lovecraft you know body of work did he cash in there and start writing loads of stories and did he know that these stories were you know are, you know, when he, I don't know if when he died, the weather as popular then as when he was first writing them? Well, n- now we're into, now we're into the territory where I'm not as much of an expert. <laughs> what, what I, what I can tell you is his fellow writers like, uh, Robert E. Howard or Frank Belknap Long or, or later Robert Block, uh, recognized, uh, something amazing going on in those stories. And Lovecraft encouraged, uh, Lovecraft encouraged the other writers to also create stories in this uh, universe that he had come up with, which that's probably also another key to his longevity, uh, that, that he allowed that to happen. Um, you know, essentially allowed other, other writers of his caliber, caliber to, to write fanfic <laughs> that they could then go publish on their own. Um, it did not... Uh, he was not a very prolific writer by, by any means. I, th- I think the whole, I, th- I think the whole of his short stories can probably be collected or have been collected in about five volumes. Uh, he never wrote any novels. He wrote a couple of, of what we would call novellas today. Um, he has, he had a number of works that he left unfinished. He just, he just wasn't, he, he just wasn't that, prolific a writer and uh he was sort of sickly um which is sort of appropriate to his stories too <laughs> once you read them um and he died kind of young you, you know he he died in his 40s i mean i'm in my 40s so you know that's that's something to to ponder um and so so he was definitely not a commercial success during his time uh, and and seemed to lack the mental and physical resources to make himself one. Well, you, you know what I like as well is like you say we've gonna you know in a couple of weeks' time get the story, and I'm gonna have you actually on again if that's all right, mate. To have you on and talk about your story and you know you kind of your you know just how you come to to make this story, but just tell us you know just for now so people can maybe go and have a look. Where does this collection that you've got your story in and where? You know, who was the editor of that book? Sure. Uh, this was a book. The book is called Cthulhu's Reign. And it was edited by Daryl Schweitzer, uh, who was at one time the the uh, editor of uh, the more recent incarnation of Weird Tales. And uh, the idea behind it is just brilliant because I don't, as obvious as it might seem, I don't think anybody's ever done it before. The, the idea behind the, the anthology was to assemble uh, a group of stories speculating of what it will be like for the human race once Cthulhu returns and takes over the Earth. And uh, there's, a, there's a variety of, of takes that you can find in there. Uh, uh, Ian Watson... Uh, over there in your part of the world, a wonderful guy and friend of mine wrote this sort of tongue-in-cheek, uh, I don't know what I might call it, a tentacle opera for long, for for want of a better better word. Uh, Laird Barron, uh, you know, very up up and coming, very intense new horror writer, wrote this very strange experimental story, 
And, uh, and as I tend to do, uh, I wrote a story that's sort of, uh, that's sort of rooted in family problems and guilt. And yet it's also, you know, very, uh, gruesome and post-apocalyptic <laughs> it was very fun to do i'm, I'm glad daryl gave me that opportunity well like like i say we, we're going to play this and i've listened to it and it's just a fantastic story so hopefully we, we, like i say we're going to get you back on and talk about your story and you know kind of how you wrote it and everything else you know that comes out of the, the wash as well but mike thank you so much for taking the time today thank you very much tony <laughs> Well, there you go. Now you do everything about Cthulhu. And like I see it, I'm going to get Mike on again to to have a little chat just about his story, you know, and everything, how he came to write it and everything like that. So we look out for that as well. So that is Starship Sofa Stories 207. I had to look down on a bit of paper there to see what number it was. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed it. Like I say, do get, you know, get yourself ready there for Starship Sofa Stories Volume 3. That's that's coming out very soon. By, before you know it, it'll be out. So do look out for that. And a big thank you to everyone who's taking part in the show. means a lot to us. Thank you very so much. One last shout as well. Don't forget, I actually do now the Sofa Note show. Yes, the Sofa Note has, if you missed that, has been relaunched. A little bit different. We don't, it isn't any roundtable discussion. Anything like this on news and science fiction. It's just interesting people. I'll pick one person and interview them and it goes up on that sofa note show. Fantastic. Lovely. I had some lovely guests on. I had the man who coined the term cyberpunk, Bruce Bethke. He's been on. We had Paul Cornell last week. And this week we have Elizabeth Ann Hull who talks about everything from science fiction way back when, right up in the day. And Elizabeth as you may or may not know, is married to a young strapling of a lad you, you might have heard of, Frederick Paul. So do pop over there to the sofa or subscribe. You'll need to subscribe to that once on a separate feed. But it'd be nice to see you over there as well. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a ventilation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.